0: Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is my friend, William O'Sullivan.
1: So, uh, yes, as I have been introduced, I'm William, and Nathan and I met in primary school years and years ago in the town of Trim. It was third class, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, third
0: class. What is Trim?
1: Is that? Trim is a town in County Meath. Um, uh, Yeah, uh, County Meath, Ireland, I suppose. It's just the simplest way to... describe its geographic location
0: i've always found the name trim to be like a very weird name because you never really get names like that here in canada you know here in canada it's names like slave lake or battleford and then you go over to ireland and you have names like trim and cork and it's like why would people name their towns like this
1: there actually is like a reason for that so the Irish name for Trim is Ballyaha Trim, which means Fort of Elderflower Tree. And so going from Ballyaha Trim to just Trim was kind of easier for the English speakers who ended up conquering Ireland.
0: Yeah. Do you have any memories of what it was like meeting each other for the first time? What was your first impression of me?
1: So I, I would have said I, I wasn't you know, a typical kid growing up. And I, I, really, I really strongly identified the first ever interest you shared with me was that you were interested in collecting newspapers. And for some reason that just seemed so different to what all of my other like contemporaries at that age I suppose were interested in. It was like, ah, oh, you know this is interesting, we can see where this goes. And that, that was pretty much like the deciding factor on on wanting to get to know you better.
0: Interesting perspective to take from someone who was like 9 years old at the time. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> As I said, you know, not necessarily on the same wave like my contemporaries. Yeah.
0: I think for myself, the first impression that I had of you was that you were the only person in my class who sounded normal because (laughs) you lived in the States at the time and you still had the accent. Uh, Right now, you sound a lot more Irish than you used to, but that was sort of what drew me in to wanting to be friends with you. And interestingly enough, shortly after meeting you, I got bumped up from third class up to fourth class because uh, there had been an administration error when I got enrolled. I think the uh, idea was that because of my age bracket, I was supposed to be in third class, but my mom stepped in and said, no, no, Nathan, he was going to go into the equivalent of fourth class when we were living back in Canada, put him in fourth class right now, or else I'm going to not be happy. And so, you know, in the month or so after that transition, there was a part of me that wasn't sure if it was worthwhile being your friend anymore because we weren't in the same class every day. We were only going to see each other maybe during lunch break. But ultimately, the fact was you were still probably the person in our primary school that I related to the most. And so that's sort of what drew me back and made me want to continue being friends with you. Very fair. Yeah. Transitioning into the next phase of the show, how has God been working your life over the past week?
1: Past week in particular. So this past week has seen me starting semester two of my master's in high performance computing at Trinity College Dublin. And throughout the week, it's actually, it's it's been... I suppose to define, trying to find the narrative element of it, it's been almost what I describe as a bit of a killer arc. At the start of any kind of semester of college, it's always a lot of orientation for new modules, stuff like that. I don't see this particular week as having any real big implications. And you know what? That's fine. You know, not every single waking moment has to be always driving you towards some greater purpose. It's okay for life to happen incrementally. Sometimes it, it can be a bit slow. One week, and then very, very busy the next. Really, to kind of phrase it like that, you know, yeah, last week not too much going on, but I'm certain that three, four weeks from now things will really be kicking up a notch, and I'll really start to narrow in on different aspects of what I'm going to be learning. Specific of specific interest to your audience might be the fact that I'm taking modules in artificial intelligence. We're just I'm mostly doing orientation, learning the jargon of the field. Moment. I think that's actually, it's a nice prelude to kind of what I'll end up learning. And in a way, it actually continues on from modules previous semester, building on knowledge that I've acquired. So it's, it's very much, it is continuous elements leading one into another because, you know, machine learning naturally lends itself quite well to artificial intelligence. You know, you want an intelligence that can learn. And so, you know, when you really think of it more big picture than just over a week, yeah, I, I could definitely say there's been some progression that you can really measure in, in terms of a narrative.
0: What computer programming languages are you learning?
1: So the ones I am being formally trained in at the moment are C++ and CUDA. CUDA is a lot less commonly known. It is a programming language for GPUs, graphics processing units. That really focuses on making sure that your programs run well in parallel. Now, what that means is that your computer can do multiple calculations at the same time. Uh, And that's very beneficial because in terms of how we're developing the hardware at the moment, You know, CPUs cannot really keep up with how much data we need to crunch at any given moment. So it's important for us to learn how to crunch data simultaneously. Then formally as well, I've learned C and Python as well, actually. And a bit of IDL, but that's a very astrophysics specific language.
0: Is the idea for you to go into a field relating to artificial intelligence? Like what's the end game for you there?
1: So I suppose the crux of what I'm going after is really mastering data analytics. And when it comes to things like parallelization, machine learning, and artificial intelligence, these are tools in my toolkit that will allow me to take information and process it in a way that we can then derive further useful information or action from. So ultimately, that's what it's going to come down to. Can I become part of a system that allows me to solve problems?
0: What kind of problems would you
1: be referring to? Like world hunger, economic problems... No, that's really the interesting part, right? Because it pretty much could be anything. One good example I have is resolving production line issues in, say, industrial bake. Just to take an example I've used previously. Even a whole list of parameters about a bakery, say where the ovens are located, where the windows are on each floor, what the size of the actual warehouse where this factory is. So many different seemingly uncorrelated parameters can allow you to solve problems. Like say, ah, the reason the bread isn't rising is because one of the third floor windows was left open and that was allowing humidity from outside to get to the factory. So trying to build up models that you can then analyze is kind of the ultimate goal of this. And really that approach of modeling, analysis, and then examining results applies to pretty much everything from industrial perfume manufacture to economics, to, you know, modern agriculture. There's hardly a field that doesn't touch realistically.
0: Right now is your filler arc. What would you say is going to be your final battle or the final battle of the uh, next arc that you're seeking Mm. to face? If we're going into Shonen anime terminology.
1: (laughs) Right. Huh. What would my next final battle be? I'd say it would probably have to come down to doing my dissertation. Uh, so I'm currently doing a taught master's, which means that I don't have to actually go and produce novel research, which means like research that's being done for the first time in a new field, or you're making some new development. What I do have to do though is I need to make sure that the work I do for my dissertation is applicable to high-performance computing, and that's supercomputing to you and me. That's going to be difficult, I think, because the firm I'm planning on doing my dissertation with—they're very good. They're—they're they're very, very good. But I'm concerned about how well certain problems can be parallelized. parallelized. Oh, geez. what that word basically? How how easily they can be made parallel? That's a bit of a concern I have at the moment. But I, I'm confident that it will end up working out. It's not like you know a cause of, of daily anxiety. But in terms of like, what is my next big struggle? What is my next big fight going to be? It's probably going to be hammering out about sixty pages of academic writing on some interesting process.
0: I guess that sort of transitions well into how my last week has been. I know that you read this on Facebook the other day, but recently I had a relapse for my addiction, and that's not something I'm particularly proud of. It's something that had a bit of a buildup. It came about as a result of a dream, and before that, there had been two other dreams that were very similar in theme, and... You know, like you do really stupid things sometimes when you're not perfectly aware. And in that case, I just, I didn't have the awareness because I couldn't have that awareness. I was unconscious. That left me vulnerable. It's something that I am going to need to work on. Mm. But as I was preparing to disclose this to my accountability group, you know, they see me as a role model. They see me as the best of the best. And in just being honest and transparent with them, instead of mocking me or saying, well, better luck next time. Instead, they came to me and they encouraged me. And they told me that they were proud of me, that I still could get back up and keep on moving forward. And it was something that I was really glad to not just have this group, but also be Part of the reason why the group was so, I guess, honest with each other. We're really there for each other. We reinforce things for each other. And that's something that it's been a battle for me in the last week is just figuring out the people, the friend groups that I have who are willing to put up with me or not just put up with me, but to actually encourage me and grow versus the friend groups that are only allowing me to associate with them because... I guess they just want to be nice to me, but even so, they still have a point where they don't really want to tolerate me. And so I want to be able to associate myself with the people who don't just love me, but who are also willing to love other people no matter what, and that in turn inspires me to love them. And I feel like there have been times in the past where I've associated with groups who have the perspective of we're going to love you because you deserve to be loved, because you're underprivileged, because we feel like we can sympathize with you. But the moment you do something that we don't like, then you're out the door. And as much as I still like those people, weirdly enough, I also realize that it's not emotionally healthy for me to be with them. And I, I think like It just made me really glad that I had this accountability group that I'm a part of. I'm glad that I'm with the Associated Bible Study that's based out in Toronto. I'm even glad for people who've been willing to help me out on the side, teaching me driving lessons so that I can get my license next month. In some ways, it's been very distressing. But at the same time, it's also been very encouraging to know that these people have been placed into my life you might say by coincidence, I say by fate, I say by higher providence. And even when things are going downhill, I, I can still find some mutual benefit in associating with them.
1: Pretty good. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. It sounds like a tough time, but it's, I, I'm glad that you have that kind of compassionate network. Do
0: you have that kind of network?
1: You know, it's an interesting one, actually. About two years ago, I was playing a video game called Rainbow Six and out of nowhere, I just got chatting with a couple of guys who were in my lobby. Little did I know that would actually lead to me joining a group of other gamers, I suppose. Uh, and we've really been grown close over the course of this pandemic because they're all based out in England, actually, or, or Scotland now. Some of the some of the newer members, but they're, they're all based generally based out of the UK. And this group of lads are remarkably reliable. You know, I, I can any any evening. When I'm not having a great time, I can log on, just have a chat with them. It feels nice to be a part of a community, even if I'm not able to get outside. So I would say that I have my support networks. They're not religious in nature, though. But are
0: they the kind of people who you know might be willing to save you in a battle, so to speak?
1: I think I could rely on a good few of them to do so, yes.
0: Like an but, actual but, yeah. battle, not just a virtual <laughs> battle.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. Not just a virtual battle. I'm not, I'm not expecting to just, you know, clutch out any given battlefield, but yeah, I think we'd get along well together and and we'd, we'd stick up for each other. Recently, we've actually kind of had a test of that. And I'm happy to say that we're all coming together in the way I think we need to. Speaking of tests,
0: let's transition to the main topic on hand. You and I went through a fairly lengthy test as of late So I would say from 2006 to 2017, we (laughs) were best friends, or at least I considered you my best friend. Definitely one of my longest running friendships.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And then out of the blue, things began to break down. You emailed me saying that uh, you didn't want to be friends anymore. And I was like, okay, shoot, that really sucks. And then for the next three years, we're kind of silent on each other's end until
1: Mm.
0: I reached out back to you just as the pandemic was about to begin and we managed to reconnect from there. So if I might ask from your perspective, why exactly did the friendship break down and why were you willing to give me a second chance when I sent you that email?
1: I was a younger man. (laughs) I was much more staunchly. Uh, And I wouldn't say militantly, but definitely I was very, very firm in my convictions that, you know, faith was remarkably silly and that people who believed God had just been tricked. You know, that, that was very much my opinion. And to try and engage with you on these topics, I suppose, it became very difficult to address our differences because I didn't have the right logical foundation to do so. I think that the way we built our arguments was very, very different. And truth be told, I realized that I had a choice. Do I allow myself to continue getting frustrated or do I not do that? I found that it became too frustrating to talk with you especially about religious matters. Given, you know, your own conviction of my conviction, they just weren't they simply weren't compatible. And I wasn't really going to drag it out for either of us, and that was the reasoning behind it. And then as to why why now? It's two reasons, I suppose. I have definitely simmered down with age. I've, I've become a touch more worldly, and I, and I understand now the important role that faith can play in people's lives. Really, it's it's nothing so much having an issue with people, you know, wanting to belong to or wanting to be able to draw upon the strength of their respective deity. I've literally no issue with that whatsoever. My, my issue, I, I narrowed down my issue to religious fundamentalism and how it affects people outside of that faith, for example. And then I also began to understand rather where our differences were arising, where our kind of logical passé was. And it was that I was building my arguments from a materialist frame of reference, and you were building your arguments from a spiritual frame of reference. And when your axioms, when the root elements of your belief system, your argument system are different, it is borderline impossible to reconcile them. So kind of understanding that, I realized, yes, if we're going to have discussions on these kind of matters, I understand that I won't be able to really, I won't be able to convince you in the way that I feel is required. And I understand that you won't be able to convince me in the same way, but I kind of detached the element of frustration from it and replaced that with understanding. So that, that's what really allowed me to get back into it. I'm like, you know what, Will, things might have changed. You know, you still describe yourself as, as a man of faith. And I'm like, that's not an issue I have anymore. And even when it came to like figuring out how to discuss these kinds of things, I knew that I had grown enough to actually engage them in good faith. Uh, I suppose that's, that's what it comes down to.
0: What would you say were the key moments uh, within that three-year hiatus uh, that gave you that development to uh, say, you know what, religious faith, it isn't actually that bad. You know, the fact that some people might actually have a valid need for it in their lives how did you come to that understanding?
1: So there's kind of the at home and abroad kind of perspective to that. Uh, In Ireland at the moment, we have a very large proportion of population that are lapsed Catholics. Uh, To explain what that is, it's, it's just basically someone who claims to be Catholic may pray in private, but doesn't really go to mass or interact with the church very much because we've had a very difficult relationship with the church. It has wielded a lot of power over a lot of lives. And for that reason, as well as others of of our society becoming gradually more progressive, people are are moving on from the church. So whilst they might necessarily proudly announce, I am an atheist, they're like, yeah, God's all right. Catholic church isn't so hot right now. And it was kind of that growing understanding that, oh, it's not, you know, I am either definitely against God or definitely for God. The mellowness of agnosticism kind of began to permeate culture really leveled me out. I suppose I, I had been more polarized and getting to see what or how people were able to stop involving religion so heavily in their own personal lives, seeing that that was actually doable. It was very relaxing because I was worried that, you know, if religion is allowed to maintain its stranglehold, what will society look like then? That's like the domestic side of things. And then from abroad, I got to see some pretty nasty sides of fundamentalism. With access to the internet, I, I was able to see, you know, events evolving in the US, how really fanatical evangelicalism, really it just seems super crazy to, like even now like <laughs> there, there are elements of it. i'm just like wow these people really believe x y and z but then I, it wasn't even localized just to the u.s just uh, seeing how much worse it could be i suppose i was really like yeah okay if this is what it is that's fine you know
0: so how did you know that i wasn't a fundamentalist
1: i always had a feeling you were <laughs> i have a feeling you might be at the moment But I suppose it was more from my perspective. It was like, I can mellow down because I know that the society that I live in isn't rife with that. I felt comfortable enough being more relaxed when the society around me was not fundamentalist in nature.
0: How might you feel if you were transported back to the 60s when the Catholic Church had a much stronger hold on Irish society?
1: Oh, that would be very difficult. Because, you know, it's actually interesting, right? When I went to college for the first time, having like pretty much grown up and all of, all of my real Irish schooling was just in trim. And because that's kind of like, you know, out in me, out in the, the veritable countryside. When I went to Trinity, that was like the first time I ever like met Protestants in large number. And that might sound strange, but in Ireland, there was very much uh, a significant divide between, you know, the quality of life of Protestants and of Catholics. Like in the 70s, Trinity, my college now, only started allowing Catholics without the permission of the bishop. <laughs> so it was very, very strange to kind of see the difference, I suppose, in intergenerational wealth that had been owned by the Protestants. Like personally, nothing against them at all. Like I just, it's interesting to see these lines that we kind of draw amongst ourselves. And so when you ask, well, what would I do if I was tra- teleported back to the 60s Ireland? I'd be like, geez, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I-, I think that I, as a person, would be a product of my environment. I don't think I necessarily would have become atheist were it not for furthering my education. I think that if I just lived in trim my entire life, I'd probably still be a Catholic, if not a lapsed Catholic. But again, when I was very young, I was incredibly devout. I was like at least a decade of the rosary at night before bed, if not the whole shebang. So really separating from my faith was actually, it's very strange. The change in in routine was difficult, but not so much the, there wasn't any like ideological difficulty, no internal culture shock between changing between, you know, very devout Catholic. And yeah, uh, I'm a condescending 12-year-old atheist. Let's go. Uh,
0: what you're saying about, you know, how at Trinity College, there was an apparent difference in generational wealth between Catholics and Protestants. As someone who used to live in Ireland, I can say that the Protestant community in Ireland is very, very small. Yeah like you have maybe 20 to 40 people per church. If there is a church, the uh, church of Ireland over there is slowly dying. Mm. But the Protestant church over in Northern Ireland is very active and alive. Last I was there, which, which was eight years ago. And if I might be totally biased in my opinions, I think that Northern Ireland is much more beautiful than the Republic.
1: Um, I don't see what religion has to do with, like, well, do you mean like geographical beauty? Yeah, geographical beauty. So like, I,
0: And I, I think that in some ways that comes from the fact that you had more money up there. You had people with more connections who were willing to develop the land in a certain ah, way. Ah,
1: like in terms of development. Okay, I'm yeah. starting to understand you now. I'm like, okay, okay. Okay. All right. Go on. Sorry. There's a part of me that
0: wonders, well, if only Protestants were allowed a free pass through Trinity College, then where did they all come from? But there's also a part of me that thinks, well, maybe they just all come from the North.
1: Well, so no, this is going to like divert up into Irish history now. And I'd like to apologize for any listener because I am not an authority on Irish history. I only have uh, rough recollections of how it went, but generally enough what happened was the united kingdom wished to more control over ireland and one of the easiest ways to do that is by putting your own people there planting them as it were so Every every now and then, uh, a British monarch would send over English people, Welsh people, Scots people over to Ireland to try and set up a community there so that they could h- kind of have more control over the predominantly Catholic Irish. There were a couple of plantations. The most successful one was in Northern Ireland, where a lot of Protestants went over and a lot of Presbyterians went over. And the locals had their rights to own land them, and it was given to these Protestants and Presbyterians. So kind of the, the origin of Protestantism in Ireland is very much... You know, people were packed up and sent here, and then given land as an incentive to do so.
0: So basically, not that different from what happened in the Americas.
1: More or less, yeah. Okay,
0: just <laughs> yeah. closer to home.
1: They pretty much tried to, yeah. It was, you know, when I think of it now, it's it's like trying to colonize an already like you know inhabited area. It wasn't good for our country, is a good way to put it, with the hindsight of a, of several hundred years. No benefits whatsoever. I would say that. There weren't – oh, well, hmm. it's really interesting, right? Because Northern Ireland benefited from the flax industry, so linen, fabric manufacturing, and shipbuilding. But now, because the Republic of Ireland has changed its economic policy and it's really encouraging, you know, it is attempting to create a very educated population. That means that we compete really well internationally for attracting international business. So nine out of the 10 world's largest pharmaceutical companies have factories, have offices in Ireland. And pretty much, yeah, Facebook, Apple, Google, they have offices here as well. They're, they're very interested in making use of a highly educated, highly motivated workforce. I would say this also lends kind of weight to our very specialist educations in the States. You still take general, subs I'm speaking in the, the framework of the US because this is really the only other college system I've actually got any kind of insight. Uh, you take general classes, so additional English history, maths, that kind of stuff for two years, then you do your specialization. In Ireland, it's, you have a specialization and then you have an even more specialist specialization. So I went into college doing physics, maths, and chemistry, and then narrowed down on physics and astrophysics as my bachelor's specialization. I mean, I would say it had the advantage of... Uh, it's, it's really difficult. It's really difficult because somewhat it brought Ireland's like political organization up to par with, say, Scotland's at the time. Then we've deviated from there. So it's to describe anything as is, is all good or all bad is always quite difficult. I'd say I don't know. I don't have enough historical insight to really offer dramatically superior or dramatically inferior options, if you get me.
0: One major positive I would want to highlight is that because the British colonized Ireland, for better or for worse, the Irish language has slowly died off into irrelevance and has been replaced by English, which, you know, for you guys, culturally speaking, that's a terrible thing. But the benefits are that English is one of the most widely spoken languages in the world. And so you guys probably wouldn't have gone all that international industry coming on your front door if you guys had, I don't know, been like Poland
1: or... Oh, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I've thought, of, I've thought about this particular element of it a fair bit myself. And I have to wonder, you know, the Welsh language is niche, certainly, but it's not that it, it is widely in colloquial use. And it's, it's the closest neighbor to England going, realistically. Um, Ireland really, we're just, we're not that far across. Like we're only separated by a small sea that can be traversed by a small personal vessel in about 24 hours by a ferry in like two or three. What I'm getting at, I suppose, is I don't think we would have necessarily lost out on our inherent use of English because it would be a powerful language for dealing with such an important neighbor. It's difficult to say, I don't think we would have liked like that. We're not ever going to use English because evidently as we developed around the globe, The U.S. became quite a powerful entity in and of itself. And just learning English specifically for trading between our two largest, closest economic partners would just be a smart idea. Like in much the same way that a lot of German students take English as a second language. Just because they understand it, it is very much a language of international trade.
0: Would you want to be in a world where you were more passionate about the Irish language, though?
1: It's a strange one. I have always had a difficult relationship with the Irish language. Because I was never and he could at it, actually. And, you know, I I think that inadequacy builds spite. And I, I, for the longest time, I was like, oh, I don't like Irish. Irish is awful. Just only having been bad at it. That was really my only experience with the language. I think I would like to be more passionate about it, to answer your question.
0: Going back a little bit on track to the process of rebuilding the friendship between us, when we were exchanging emails, just as the pandemic was beginning, I had knowledge that if I was going to be sharing with you everything that was going on in my life over the past three or four years, uh, I was going to go into some fairly weird stuff. And there was a part of me that was wondering, well, is William going to be accepting of this? Is he going to just be turned off by this and say, hey, Nathan, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. Thanks for giving me the emails. Goodbye what was your reaction to reading all of those stories?
1: So, yeah, this is always an interesting one. And it's a statement about myself that always, you know, attracts a lot of suboptimal attention. I would say that I am a judgmental person, o- only in that I make decisions based on the information I have. And when I read your stories, when I found out what you've been going through, the way I judged it was, this is really unfortunate and I feel bad for you. I'm sorry. I uh, really... It came from a real place of compassion. The the way I, I interpreted what had happened in your life, it wasn't pity. It was just pure, unadulterated compassion. Like, I am so sorry that all of this happened to you. I am ready to continue listening, though. It never negatively affected my opinion of you, if that was what you're wondering. It really just was, okay, I appreciate him telling me. It felt really refreshing to kind of have your honesty.
0: Was there any point where you felt like I can't suspend my disbelief anymore? Uh, Like the stories that I shared with you, they went into some fairly wild turns where I was making all these different claims about stuff that was going on. Was there a point where you're just like, okay, I don't really know if I can believe this anymore, or were you willing to suspend your disbelief if only for the sake of getting through the narrative that I
1: had to share? In the interest of being 100% honest, I did not really suspend my disbelief. I understood that you believed everything you were saying, and that was enough for me to interpret the story and continue listening to it and continue engaging with it. Because I very much understood that we, we came from these different logical foundations that I referenced earlier, you know, spiritualism versus materialism. And I understood that when you made these kind of claims, when you made these statements, it wasn't because you thought it was a nice, convenient lie. It's because you genuinely believed them. And so what, um, what am I really to do about that? It didn't convince me of things, but it let me engage with your narrative, I think.
0: You say that you're taking things from a materialist perspective, that I'm taking things from a spiritualist perspective. And I I think you're recognizing something that a lot of people in the world don't recognize when it comes to discourse is that Before you educate someone about where they might be going wrong, you have to understand where they're coming from. You have to argue things from the favor of where they're at, because if you don't address those root issues, then you're missing out on the bigger picture. So, for example... Something that often comes up for me whenever I'm interacting with members of the LGBT community is I hear a lot of people say that we need to educate people on what it's like uh, living as a homosexual or as a transgender person. We need to uh, make sure that people feel quite a bit of compassion for this marginalized group. And there's a part of me that thinks, you know, this is probably going to work for 80% of the normal population, but for 20% of people, they're not going to accept that because there's still that fundamental issue of people who believe that uh, homosexuality or transgenderism is inherently wrong. Hmm. And you kind of need to go a little bit deeper in that. For some people that might involve taking apart the Bible showing that it's just not a book worth trusting. For some people, it might be pointing to the, the flow of society and showing that the way that we thought about things back 100 years ago is just completely outdated now. So why do we cling to these outdated beliefs? But I think that's taking things from a very deconstructionist standpoint, and it's not necessarily allowing for a proper reconstruction.
1: Sorry, i ask you to clarify on what you meant by deconstructionist reconstruction. Okay, artist.
0: Okay, so in literature, there is this uh, idea called deconstruction, where we take a common, a familiar uh, story beat or character, and uh, we show how it would really look like if it were to play out in reality. And so we're deconstructing the ideal in order to make it more conquerors with reality so a good example of that would be have you ever read watchmen or watched the movie
1: i've not i actually haven't been to get around to it
0: okay do you know what it's about
1: only vaguely you you do well to re-explain it for me okay
0: um have you seen the incredibles Yes. Okay, so that's going to be an easier example to work from. So The Incredibles, uh, the way that movie starts out, it sort of acts as a deconstruction of superheroes, of how all these superheroes that are going around and saving people, they're actually causing massive property damage, they're actually causing injuries to people, and... The normal population, they don't want to have that. They might be fine with all these other threats going around, but the idea is that those threats are less of a threat than the superheroes going around and doing their thing. And so that acts as a deconstruction. But then, later on in the movie the movie reconstructs the idea to show that, no, these superheroes are definitely needed within this world. Even if they are causing huge amounts of property damage and loss of life, they are still saving the day. And so that's an example of a story that is deconstructing these ideas and then reconstructing them. Another example might be, have you seen the movie Logan? Yes. Okay. So in that movie... It basically deconstructs this idea, once again, like the Incredibles of the value of superheroes and mm-hmm. uh, what happens when things go horribly wrong. At the beginning of the movie, Professor X, he's dying because of old age. Because he's dying, his powers are getting out of hand and it's gotten so bad that it's killed off the X-Men. Logan himself is slowly dying because, you know, he even he's not going to last around forever. And so the whole movie for the first 90% of it is just about how living life as a superhero, eventually you are going to break down. And when you do break down, depending on how powerful you are, that power might cause a huge amount of accidents that aren't going to be beneficial to you or the people around you. But then within the last 10% of the movie, the movie reconstructs itself to show that even if you're dying, And you're going to go down, you might as well go down with a fight. And so I think from the issue of the LGBT community, the idea with them is that the most successful individuals, the most successful activists are deconstructing the ideas of tradition and biblical values, and they are trying to reconstruct it with their ideas regarding gender and sexuality, how successful they are at actually doing that. I think that's debatable, but in the case of what we're talking about right now, where you're coming from a materialist perspective and I'm coming from a spiritualist perspective, I don't know if we've necessarily gone down that path yet.
1: That's not something we've resolved, no.
0: No. And like, is it something that you'd want to be resolved? Is it something like you'd want to deconstruct everything on my end and reconstruct it in order to say, hey, Nathan, there's a better path and it's called
1: science. See that's that's it's difficult right because so to use mathematics terminology again an axiom is is what we consider uh, like just a, a fundamental argument right you assume it to be true right so say that my axiom is that a triangle contains 180 degrees. Your axiom is that a triangle contains 190 degrees. We can develop completely separate fields of geometry that are both completely congruent with our own logic. The only difference being our own axioms. Trying to convert someone's axiomic beliefs, like wh- whether there is a higher power, for example, or whether there is not, that I don't know if that really can be done. Especially when we're older and when we are, I suppose, stuck in our ways. Like, I don't want to be disingenuous, but you hear the, the language of people getting deprogrammed from cults, like that must be incredibly difficult on both the deprogrammer and deprogrammees because you're, ch- you're trying to change someone's axiom. Someone who might believe in a cult of personality, this random guy is like, yeah, well, this guy's going to take us away somewhere and it's going to be awesome. Trying to change someone's core beliefs is always ridiculously difficult. Now, do I think it is worth doing? I think it depends. You know, I I think we have very much a freedom of religion, a freedom of belief. We are allowed to engage in the world whatever way we see fit. I I think that's not a a wildly irresponsible line to take. The only issue is really when it comes to informing certain decisions, I suppose. So I'm a huge proponent of secularism, the state. I think that when you have a society that captures a large number of faiths under the one kind of, well, under the one state, it really shouldn't be up to any one religion to govern the existence of other religions. Because I feel that if every religion was allowed to choose, should everyone else be part of our religion, they'd probably all say yes. I can't think of a religion off the top of my head now that would gladly be happier, right, to see everyone belong to a different denomination of the same faith, if you get me.
0: I think I do. And I think you have a point in that the secular democracy... In some ways, it offers a lot more religious freedom than a theocracy. And to my knowledge, the only theocracy that I can think of that has worked in the sense that you could still have a degree of freedom and not have people dying because of religious penalties is probably the kingdom of Israel, way back in eighth to sixth century BC. Even then. I want to stress that that system was not perfect. On one hand, you had the king who was determining, you know, how the people were being governed. You had the priests who were taking into consideration the people's offerings, and they were in charge of the uh, religious activities. You had a, a very clear set of rules and boundaries that could be looked at and understood by anyone who had the ability to reach into a scroll and find what they were looking for. But at the same time, not everyone followed the rules all the time. There were periods of time where the temple was just in disrepair, where people weren't acting in the ways that was expected of them. And even when there was this sort of perfect state, which once again, I'll debate the continual existence of, there's this idea that, If you're going to live in the kingdom of Israel, you are going to follow the rules of the kingdom of Israel. You are going to become Jewish. You are going to become circumcised. If you want to worship in the temple, that is what the expectation is. If you're just going to the kingdom to become a merchant and uh, do trade, you don't have to part of the society, but if you're actually willing to contribute, then you need to conform. And I think that is the paradox that we have, not just for that particular kingdom of theocracy, but for any state that we're in is that when we're going to these places, we need to be willing to conform. And the places that are very loose in restriction on that, they are arguably, they are more free, but at the same time, they're not as united. Yeah, there's, yeah. The, there's a lot less stability, like what's happening in the States right now.
1: No, no, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, I don't think. I think that it, it's very difficult to allow, you know, true freedom of expression to coexist with that notion of unifying behind key beliefs, I suppose. As countries go, I'd say America didn't do a terrible job of it in the past. I mean, just, just and I don't want to clarify now just specifically behind these ideals of patriotism and to be American. You know, that's what you conform to. You can retain elements of your past, like if you're Irish-American, German-American, Polish-American, Italian. Like these these elements readily kind of came into forming the United States. And I found that really interesting because even across those few countries I listed there, like that's quite a bit of religious diversity. Like, yes, there are pretty much all Catholic or Christ, Christian denominations, sorry. But still, to get, to get them to get along the way they kind of did, I suppose... I don't really know what else to say about that, though.
0: What you're saying about how freedom of expression, you can't really have that while also expecting people to conform. I would argue that there's still the ability to freely express yourself through whether it's art or business or science, as long as you're willing to follow certain boundaries of what Uh, is expected of you. And what we're talking about in terms of deconstruction and reconstruction I don't actually want to go ahead and deconstruct your materialist perspective. As weird as that might sound, I do want to affirm the idea that uh, there are things in this world, materially speaking, that matter, that are consistent with each other. And what I've been trying to do over the course of the last 11 months or so is just saying, hey, man this materialist perspective and the spiritual perspective maybe they can coexist at the same time
1: oh yeah I, i actually i might just want to cut across there i agree with that i think they can coexist i do think that in any kind of civil society you can very much have elements of it that are spiritualistic and those that are materialistic i think that's rational
0: so what would you say is stopping you from totally embracing that idea You're saying that you're approaching things from a materialist perspective. Is there anything in your mind that is taking more of a spiritualist perspective? Or is it just Ah, 100% materialist? Even if you might agree with the idea that uh, spirituality has a place in the world, you just cannot comprehend
1: of the idea. Right. I, I I get where you're coming from now. So in terms of me personally, and I suppose maybe the value I see in personally being spiritualistic... It's a difficult one. You know, I really, I see a lot of value in the community that faith can build up, that spirituality can build up. I really don't have to look any further than like, you know, my hometown to kind of see that, that like, you know, the Sunday mass was pretty much all I needed to do to see pretty much everyone in town, more or less. It's nice to always have a common unifying bond with people around you. And it's an element of, there's an element of conformity to that. Like, you know, we all agree to these same spiritual tenets and we can go from there. I see value in that. I do. It's just, it it, it isn't something that does it for me, if you get me. I'm like, for me, spirituality and philosophy are so closely intertwined and yet so remarkably distinct. Really the closest I can get to having spiritual experiences is really taking the time to perform introspection, to muse on the nature of the world, to try, you know, to figure out what's going on in the world around me and then kind of draw on my experiences, my understanding, if I'm particularly interested in the subject, I will go ahead and like look things up just to like fill out little blanks in maybe my thought process. But in terms of how spirituality appeals to me, I find that it's too presumptuous. One of the key elements of being materialistic is not that, ah, we know this. I think it's so reassuring to say, I don't know, because it's a very, very, very big world out there. And to be like, yeah, I'm not sure about this. I don't know about that. It's an incredibly valuable tenet of materialism because it's so overwhelmingly humble. Like similarly, it's really interesting. In in the field of science in general, right? Our greatest heroes are the people who showed that their other greatest heroes were wrong. You know, if someone were able today, right, to disprove, to beat Einstein's general relativity, they wouldn't be like, oh, this guy's a jerk. He, you know, he... We really like Einstein. We like what he did. No, the entire scientific community would move on immediately. Be like, yeah, this guy has literally just shown through his mathematics or through his experimentation that Einstein actually got it wrong. And we would laud him for that achievement. I don't think there's any other kind of, I'm reluctant to describe science as a belief system, but any other kind of system of thought that wants to take itself down a notch almost like, yeah, we were wrong here too. Uh, I find that to be very, very endearing. And it's that aspect of, yeah, it's okay not to know something, we might figure it out eventually, that keeps me on the materialist path, keeps me in the materialist worldview.
0: I think you take a very optimistic view of science in the sense that, you know, scientists, they would be willing to move on to an idea that rewrites their entire understanding of physics as an example because like when you're referring to Einstein I can't help but think back to how much of a proponent he was against string theory because Mm. it didn't fit with his understanding of the world and how he spent most of the latter part of his life just trying to figure out a grand theory of everything Mm. specifically so that he could disprove string theory
1: I mean yeah that is absolutely an element of it as well. And look, Einstein, specifically with cosmology, he has been wrong about things there as well. You know, nobody is perfect as well as something we readily admit. And for him to be like, yeah, string theory is absolutely unviable. Okay, cool. He's Einstein. We get it. We, we definitely hold him in high regard. But until he can show the maths to prove that, that's not really for him to say. It, it could be something he believed, but at the same time, no one else has to believe that until he shows proof. And th- that's really what it is about.
0: So what about concepts related to more ideologically driven Mm. ideas, such as if someone were to come up with a fairly good proof of God's existence, or if someone were to categorically prove things like the fact that unborn children have souls or that transgender people are not of the gender that they claim to be?
1: You know, that, that's just how science works. If anyone were able to categorically, empirically and peer in a, in a peer-reviewed way prove any of those things by the nature of just accepting logic, right? If they met all these benchmarks of being real, if they met all these benchmarks of being testable, that's fine. But I, I really have to stipulate that not everything instantly has to be provable. It took us a long time to figure out so many things about the world around us. And going back to that, I don't know that's completely acceptable. you are as a scientist you are allowed to say I don't know why this configuration of atoms become frequency transparent when they're drawn in the shape of a triangle that's completely allowed to not know things is all right that just means you've still got a job that we still have you know collective knowledge to build there's nothing wrong with not knowing it's very very freeing you know even if the world can be broken down bind in its minutiae, maybe not for me just yet. Accepting that is is very healthy, I think.
0: And so when you're looking at me and you're hearing me talk about things that I am fairly certain of that you're not as certain about, what are the thoughts that are going through your mind as to your perspective?
1: I have no reason to be convinced until I am shown evidence otherwise. You know, the, the burden of proof is is really like one of those simplest concepts. You cannot establish something is true unless you can prove it. You know, I think it's like there's a rule of the Internet that pretty much embodies the same thing. It's like Pixar it didn't happen. Really being able to show that something is correct is so important. And in the same way, I cannot rule out the existence of God. You know, that would be remarkably arrogant of me to be just like, yeah, there just isn't one. That's just a fact. But what I can say is from the way I've been able to kind of construct the world around, me, I just find it very unlikely, you know? And the thing is, once there's proof, I, I will change my mind. If you cannot change your opinion to reflect new information, you are not engaging with it critically. And if the new information arose that God is real, if that just became information, like, you know, non-biased, simply a, a true fact, right? Or rather true in insofar as we can understand it, right? to give an analogy, like we understood Newtonian gravity quite well. Up until we realized that, you know, gravity at cosmological scale is, is a bit of a different story given, you know, the curvature of space time and all that jazz. If we can understand something to be true, so far as we know, that's fine. I'm ready to kind of change my interpretation of the world. It'll open up a lot more questions. That's for sure. But at the end of the day, it'll answer another one, you know? Yeah. And I think
0: ultimately for myself, in the short term, as much as I don't know if I'm going to win you over by arguing into a, a corner, although if I might be totally honest, I do enjoy the discussions we have. I do think in the long term, there is the potential for change to happen on your end. I've shared with you a number of prophecies that have been spoken over me in my life. And if those prophecies come to pass, maybe that will work as evidence for you. I know that we've talked a little bit, not extensively as of late, but definitely around the time that I gave you that Left Behind book for your birthday, about the end times. And uh, I do think right now, especially with the pandemic happening and a whole lot of political machinations going on behind the scenes, I do think we are setting ourselves up for the end times to happen probably 50 years down the line. So it's going to be a long, long haul if it comes out at all. But I do think that we might see something like it happen. And uh, if that does happen, I hope that convinces you.
1: I hope it doesn't happen. That sounds like an awful time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, sure, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, I, I think so far the 2020s haven't exactly I've been doing anyone any favors. But, you know, whether or not I, I necessarily take a design at the end times, I, I do not. You know, it's really interesting, actually. I used to have a really big issue with kind of adopting a nihilistic philosophy because I realized, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of a lot of days from now, uh, the sun will end up going like a red giant and just destroying the earth. And then, you know, okay, if we manage to get off planet, what then? Like we are due for universal collapse. And it was always very difficult for me to resolve that. Like, why does anything matter if everything's just going to come to an end anyway? even though it troubled me like a lot for about a year or so, when I when I started college, actually, it's something I've resolved now to give me a much more relaxed worldview, if that makes sense, because it really, it drives home the message that, you know what, ultimately it doesn't matter. So you might as well have a decent time if you can.
0: Yeah. Existentialism. It's pretty good middle ground. So I would say for recording, we're Nearly out of time. Before we go, is there anything that you'd want to recommend? Any books, any websites, any Ooh, shows?
1: Books, websites, or shows? Or just anything in general? Anything in general. Uh, if I can make a, a recommendation about lifestyle, I would. Recently, I've gone through some some personal difficulty. And now, now this side of the year, starting 2021, I've really been focused on developing personal discipline a lot more. And so I I find that doing what you can to convince yourself to do things on days where you really don't want to, I I found it to be a very powerful tool for, like, you know, keeping myself organized, you know, starting journaling, starting exercising more frequently, just really trying to get back in control of one's life. It, It certainly made lockdown and everything like that a lot more bearable for myself. So look, it's never anything easy to start, but it gets easier every day you do it. How do you exercise
0: during lockdown?
1: so i used to fence i I used to be a fencer in college and so we do like exercise basically before we actually started outs to kind of like get us loosened up you know build a little bit of muscle here and there where possible so it's it's mostly bodyweight exercises so push-ups planking sit-ups anything you can do like that if if you can get yourself a yoga mat it's quite doable just unroll it in the morning do it before you do anything else pop it away and once that becomes part of your morning routine, it's very satisfying. There's a big dopamine rush when you're like, "Ah, oh, I've done the exercise for the day. I've, I've been good, basically. You, get, you, get, you hit that reward center of your brain and it's, it's just ah, feels quite good.
0: Yeah, definitely is. I guess that's uh, everything for now. See you guys later. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray with special guest William O'Sullivan. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach
1: out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.